Hello, and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Paul Dickinson, and today with my friend Dylan Tanner, we'll be kicking off the first in a two-part series, Lifelines versus Deadlines, looking at the need for science-based policy to help us deliver net zero by 2050. Now, Dylan is my co-host for this episode. Next week, my co-host is Fiona Macklin, and she came up with this phrase, lifelines versus deadlines. And what she means by that is that we have serious deadlines reaching us on climate change. We have to take those seriously, but we also need lifelines. And she, like me, like Dylan, fundamentally believe that it's government policy that's going to give us that hope that we can get out of this problem because, you know, the law is the law and everyone's got to follow it. I mean, we've seen huge increases in net zero targets set by banks and businesses and organizations in recent years. But without government stepping in to support this voluntary action, many say delivering on a net zero strategy by 2050 won't be possible. I certainly believe that. Now, in fact, in the US right now, there's an active campaign to stop businesses coming together in support of net zero targets. So what's going on here? What are the forces at play? Why aren't policymakers stepping up to this challenge? Now, to help make sense of this, we have a great lineup of guests from government, business, and academia. So thanks for being here. It's a real pleasure to spend some time digging into a subject that I think builds on the Momentum versus Perfection miniseries that Tom recently produced with Fiona McGrath. I think Tom and Fiona brilliantly captured the frustration and agony in the climate change movement. In this two-part series, we want to dig a little bit into where that pain comes from. And I'm going to start by quoting Hobbes from 1650, who explained what the state was all about. And he said it was designed to protect us by representing the power of all of us through loyalty to that power. But he warned that the obligations of the subjects, the citizens, last as long and no longer than the power lasteth by which the state is able to protect them. So that's a little warning for governments here. So the whole madness we suffer seems to me to be related to the state failing to protect us. So our governments have failed. (gasps) But why? Now, to answer that question, I am delighted to say that my co-host for this episode is my dear friend, Dylan Tanner. Now, Dylan, we met 15 years ago through Tessa Tennant. And she, as you know very well, was the mother of the responsible investment movement in Europe. She launched numerous initiatives. She was co-founder of CDP and our first chair She was our friend. Can you please tell our listeners uh, one thing about the genius of Tessa Tennant, who very sadly died in 2018? Thank you, Paul. I'm delighted to be here, and I've been a big fan of outrage and optimism since it started. Yeah, Tessa was a great friend, a a great inspiration to me. She continues to be. One one thing that I can say about her was she always brought out the best in people and made them, helped them to be the best version of themselves. Uh, that's, That's a really... It was a really beautiful thing about her. 
Well, that's, that's actually that's so true. And if we all had that superpower that she so abundantly had, the world would be a way, way better place. Dylan, you grew up in Japan. You spent your first 34 years living there and you built a successful environmental business consultancy. Then you came to the UK and did a doctorate in astrophysics as far as I can remember. But then, critically to this conversation, you set up the NGO Influence Map. So, Please, I mean, I've been a huge fan and supporter of Influence Map since it started, but can you let our listeners know what is Influence Map and how does it relate to what we're going to be talking about today? So, Influence Map is a think tank that generates data that holds companies to account for blocking and holding back the science based policy that you talked about in your intro. And this is hugely important if we want to change the system, we have to understand the system. So, we have 50 wonderful people around the world doing this research, generating these company profiles and, and, and whatnot, and then ge- and just putting it out there so things will change. Well, Dylan, being incredibly well connected in this network as you are, and being something of an authority figure on this critical problem, you've actually introduced some amazing guests for us. So let's get into it with our first brilliant interview. That's when a penny dropped, because then I began to realize none of this is about the science. All of this is a political debate about the role of government. So in a number of places, we actually found these people saying they see environmentalists as creeping communists. They see them as reds under the bed. They call them watermelons, green on the outside, red on the inside. And they worry that environmental regulation will be a slippery slope to socialism. That's the voice of Harvard history and science professor Naomi Oreskes speaking on a documentary based on a 2010 book, The Merchants of Doubt. Together with co-author Eric Conway, Naomi sets out to uncover what was driving climate denialism in the USA. What we found, what Eric Conway and I showed, was that there had been an organized effort, a very organized effort, um, going back to the late 1980s to discredit climate science, to cast doubt on the scientific findings of the reality and severity of climate change, to disparage scientists and to undermine public trust in scientific integrity. And the whole purpose of this effort was to block action on climate change and therefore to protect the interests, the profits, the prerogatives of the fossil fuel industry and its allies. I've worked in climate change a couple of decades. It looks like the reason why, you know, the children of the world have got their throats in the jaws of this climate change monster is because a whole bunch of people tried to undermine uh, a consensus among scientists that governments should take action. The whole point of science denial has always been delay. It's been to push back action so that these industries can continue to operate business as usual, continue to make extremely large profits. So it's always been about pushing back policy action. I think this industry, like the tobacco industry before it, um, knew that eventually fossil fuels would be regulated, if not actually banned one day. Uh, And the game wasn't to stop it, but to delay it. I think they've actually succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. I think back in the 80s, they thought, you know, we delay this for a decade or two, uh, we'll be in great shape. And they've delayed it for four decades. So they've had a shocking success. And in some ways, this is the most upsetting part, because it's the part that many, even people of goodwill, have fallen for. So this is when the fossil fuel industry says, 
we accept the reality of climate change. Uh, we don't challenge the science. We, we're Paris aligned, right? We've heard that from all of the major fossil fuel corporations, um, even to the point that I just heard recently that a major um, pension fund in Denmark that previously had withdrawn from ExxonMobil has now reinvested in ExxonMobil or voted to reinvest in ExxonMobil because they say, well, ExxonMobil has now stopped denying climate change. Well, that's really terrible because the reality is that while they say that they're Paris aligned, their actions are anything but. No, no, I, I agree with you. And our research shows this is underway. And actually, we uncovered documents from the International Gas Union's website showing their internal strategy. And they describe, I quote, climate change as an existential threat to the future of the gas industry and described a series of deliberate PR and other tactics to, 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 to counter that and prolong gas forever. So really grim stuff. Well, there's a large network of enablers, and we can think of them as direct enablers and indirect enablers or, you know, first degree and second degree. So the first degree groups that I was talking about last time were part of, actively part of the coalitions, groups like the Global Climate Coalition or the Cooler Heads mm -hmm. Coalition that actively yeah. worked to prevent policy action on climate change back in the 90s, 2000s, and through the 2010s. But in addition, there's another network of what we could call second-order enablers, which are the PR companies and the advertising agencies that help these companies craft their misleading strategies. So we've all seen the ads on television or on social media telling us that gas is green, that gas is a clean fuel, um, that the gas industry is commit committed to a healthy, safe environment, um, or that ExxonMobil is doing everything it can to move us uh, in the direction of a healthy planet. Uh, so who's built, who's making those ads? Who's crafting those ad campaigns? And what we know is that there are, there are advertising agencies, some of them the same ones who worked for the tobacco industry, that have been directly involved in these campaigns. And, and they're really important for, I think, two reasons. First of all, I think, um, unlike ExxonMobil, I think they are subject to sh shame. I mean, I think if they're exposed and their role is exposed, some of these companies may, in fact, and we're beginning to see some companies beginning to have this conversation, that they don't have to take these clients, that they don't have to participate in the dishonest representation of this really damaging industry. Um, so I think that's really important. And it's also important from a legal standpoint, because we had a really breakthrough case here in the United States just recently involving the sale of dangerous opioid drugs. So it's mm -hmm. well known that Sackler and uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the Sackler Industries, also Johnson & Johnson, sold and marketed opioid drugs that they knew were highly addictive, but they lied about it. They claimed that the drugs were not addictive and they pitched it to doctors that these drugs would be very effective in helping them deal with patients' pain, legitimate pain, and that they didn't have to worry about addiction. And that turned out to be entirely false. That's really interesting. And then let me circle back to, to Paul's uh, initial comment. How can these people be not held accountable and, and, and not, not be jailed, essentially? You know, there was a case that's just settled here in the United States. I should say cases, um, 60,000 uh, cases that were part of a joint settlement that was just just announced about, I don't know, a week or 10 days ago here in the United States against Johnson & Johnson for health adverse health effects associated with asbestos contamination in their talc products. Now, one of the really interesting things about this case is that it's giant. 
It's absolutely giant. The Talc settlement was $8.9 billion. It's the largest settlement wow. in the history of American, you know, product liability damages. And that's real money, right? Yep. And so I think Ouch, if we can, yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, if we can begin <laughs> to use these sorts of models to say companies do not have the right to sell products that hurt people and to lie about it. Right. And that and that's what we know has happened in the fossil fuel industry. I mean, I want to be careful here. J&J has not admitted that they uh, lied about their product. Um, but I think we have overwhelming evidence. I mean, not just I think I know we have overwhelming evidence because I helped collect it. And you guys <laughs> do, too, right. We have overwhelming evidence that these companies knew about the risk of climate change, knew about the central role of their product in driving climate change. And they lied about it. And this, of course, is the central argument of the work I've done with my colleague, Jeffrey Supran, where most recently in our most recent article, we showed that not only did they know about this problem in a kind of general way, um, but they their own scientists were actually building climate models in the late 70s and early to mid 80s that accurately predicted what would in fact happen um, that were pretty pretty precise, um, were probably better than some of the academic models that were being built at that same time. Shell made a video actually called The Climate of Concern in 1991, which is on YouTube. And it's uh, it's a very dark warning about climate change. And I can't help thinking that maybe Shell changed after 1990. You know, I wonder if when the Berlin Wall fell, we no longer tried to compete to be a better system and companies just started prioritizing shareholder value maximization. And there was no shame about ignoring the responsibilities of the corporation and society. I mean, I you know, is is that fair? There was a lot of political momentum in the late 80s, early 90s, when this thing that people had known about for some time as a possibility became real, or as I like to say, when a scientific prediction became a scientific fact. Just fast forwarding to the to, to the present and the future, if you're an optimist and you, you will think, well, we have a narrow window yet to, to save the planet from devastating climate change. Uh, what can we do when it comes to this problem of misinformation? So I do think that attention to the platforms is really important because without these platforms, disinformation would just kind of fizzle out. The Dominion case against Fox News is super important because we see in that case, once again, the executives knew that they were lying. They knew they were per perpetuating a really, really damaging falsehood uh, that struck at the heart of American democracy, and they did it because they thought it would help them make money. And so that's so like what we're seeing in the fossil fuel industry. So the exposure of that kind of venality is really important because I think it's hard for people to accept when corporate executives are that venal. We, we don't mm -hmm. really want to believe it. We don't want to believe that people are that bad. So I think this kind of exposure is super important. And we really need to ask a set of hard questions. And of course, as is often the case, Europeans are ahead of the United States on this issue, much more willing to think about what would be a set of appropriate regulations um, to protect people against this kind of uh, misleading and fraudulent activity. And there's no question that Facebook, Google, Fox News, um, they have really been implicit partners. And again, just as ExxonMobil says that they you know, don't deny climate change, but then you look at their actions. So, you know, Google says that they won't allow disinformation about climate. And yet we see a tremendous amount of disinformation on that platform. Let's set up the equivalent of a federal trade commission or or some equivalent body to help us figure out how to get this under control. Because 
um, you know, there are there are big issues. There there are First Amendment issues, and those have to be addressed. Mm -hmm. But as I always like to remind people here in the United States, who often seem to have some kind of weird idea that the First Amendment is absolute. No, it's not. The First Amendment does not protect against fraud. It does not give you the right to defame or libel people. And it does not give you the right to commit fraud. I mean, that was the, the big important thing that Judge Kessler said in the tobacco case. The First Amendment does not offer the right to commit fraud. And so much of this activity is fraudulent. And platforms like Google and Facebook may not be deliberately committing fraud, but they are enabling people to use their platforms. And that makes them, you know, at minimum, a kind of an accessory after the fact. So what, if anything, might force a change? In terms of the positive message, well, I believe that mold grows in dark places. And I believe that when we expose these things to the light of day, many people do become legitimately angry. They they don't like this and they want it to change. And I think that's how social change begins to happen. I mean, there are many different theories of social change, but I think a big part of it has to do with changing the narrative and changing what we think of as acceptable. I mean, if you think about the history of slavery, an awful lot of people thought slavery was fine until they didn't. Mm -hmm. And that's a really mm -hmm. important change. And I was thinking, you know, Britain plays an important part in the role in the story about the abolition of Slavery, it's a story that's hardly known in the United States, but consumer boycotts of sugar yep. played a significant role in raising people's consciousness wow, yes, about yeah. how ordinary people were benefiting from slavery just by putting sugar in their tea, sugar that had been um, harvested by slaves in the Caribbean. And I think that there's something similar to that that we can do to begin to make people aware of the damage that is being done and the ways in which we are complicit. It's not our fault, but we are complicit until we st start to do something about it. And maybe it might involve consumer boycotts, but still we do have power as consumers. We have power as citizens. And I think that Part of what we need to do is to use the outrage to channel people. I like to talk about channeling anger into action. And I think that's what you guys are doing. And that's why I'm so happy to be talking to you today. It is textbook economics that the price of a product should reflect its true cost. The fossil fuel industry violates this rule of market economies. It does so by spending billions of dollars on disinformation, false doubt, climate obstruction, and political dark money. Say it so they can hear it in the back. And why not to protect one of the most lucrative subsidies in human history? That's US Senator Sheldon Whitehouse representing Rhode Island. And he is chair of the United States Federal Budget Committee. And he was speaking just a few days ago at a hearing on the real cost of fossil fuels. For decades, Senator Whitehouse has been sounding the alarm on how the corrosive impact of corporate money in US politics is blocking climate policy. So we began by asking him how this became so embedded in America's political system. The uh, general overview is that when the Founding Fathers set up the United States of America, there was zero role for corporate influence in our politics, not in the Constitution, not in the Bill of Rights, not in the Federalist Papers, not in the uh, Philadelphia debates, nothing. Uh, but then along came huge corporations um, 
and they began to interfere in our politics. And then along came Teddy Roosevelt and the muckrakers, and they put them back in their cage, and they put an end to the abusive influence of corporations. And then came uh, Lewis Powell and a bunch of Republicans on the Supreme Court who have studiously built a fake constitutional pathway for corporate influence in politics, culminating in the god-awful Citizens United decision. This enormous power of corporate influence has been created in my lifetime, created by Republican appointees to the Supreme Court, and created with exactly zero uh, historic constitutional support. And that's the world we live in now. It's an artifact in which the corporations have created the road that gives them the power to dominate our politics. Can I just hop in here for one second and just say, Senator, could you just explain what is a little bit about the god-awful Citizens United uh, decision for our listeners? Sure. Uh, And let me throw that into the context of a before and after, because when I got to the Senate, we were doing bipartisan legislation on climate all the time. There were at least three really good bills kicking around in the Senate. John McCain ran for president as Republican with a good climate platform. Things looked perfectly normal. And then came Citizens United in January of 2010. And what Citizens United said is, uh, hey, it's cool for a big special interest to spend unlimited, unlimited, totally unlimited amounts of money in politics. And it took about a nanosecond for the big special interest to figure out not only how to precipitate those millions of dollars into politics, but to do so through intermediaries that hid their hands, that hid who they were. And that created this new era we're in of massive political dark money that is very hard to attribute to the special interests uh, behind it. And with that January 2010 decision, all of the bipartisan work on climate came to an instant like heart attack stop. We have not been able to get a Republican on a decent climate bill since. And it is the malign power of the fossil fuel industry expressed through probably billions of dollars, um, but hidden through a whole flotilla of phony front groups that exerts this pressure on our Republican friends so that they ignore data and science that are taught in their own home state universities and uh, walk the path of climate denial obediently. I mean, that, that, that's, that's really a gr- really grim state of affairs. But, you know, we detect a lot of influencing and negativity on climate directly coming from the oil and gas companies and their, their direct agents. So talk me through any other, aside from the money flows that, that impact elections, what else are they doing in terms of advertising and meeting with uh, politicians and regulators? Well, if you look at... Um the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Dylan, who you have repeatedly outed as one of the worst climate obstructors in America, and you've outed them recently as having not changed their climate position one whit, but only having changed their PR strategy a bit to try to look a little bit less idiotic on the subject of climate. Uh, So they make a very good example. They play in politics by lobbying directly on behalf of the fossil fuel industry, They play in politics directly by writing campaign contribution checks, PAC checks to candidates who will oppose climate legislation. They play in politics by funding dark money enterprises, the so-called outside spending. And there have been cases in which which they have been the biggest dark money spender in the race. 
And they play very aggressively in the administrative space uh, with comments about regulations and litigation to stall regulations. And then they turn up in court as amici curiae to fight for the fossil fuel industry. So there's this whole array of, you know, five different arenas in which uh, they uh, obstruct climate progress for the fossil fuel industry. And they're the big one, but they're one of maybe 50 of such groups. So it's a real armada. I want to, that's, that's really interesting. I want to drill down on this because we see it as a huge problem globally. You know, there's the equivalents around the world doing the same thing. But let's just take the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, Please. It has, a res, it, has, <laughs> it has a respectable sounding name. And, uh, you know, from what I know that it has, it has its main headquarters directly opposite the White House with big banners. looms over the White House. <laughs> big banners saying jobs and growth. Um, so, I mean, it is corporate America. Uh, so what's going well, on here? not so much, actually. Uh, I think there are two tiers to this. One is that it is corporate America. It has a regular board. It has regular members. And they lobby on behalf of... Um, you know, general corporate deregulatory anti-tax measures. They also are getting enormous amounts of money, I believe, from the fossil fuel industry because I don't think they can spend the kind of dark money in elections that they spend without having revenue that comes outside of the traditional dues that their members and board members pay. Uh, So I strongly believe that there is a very significant slush fund uh, from the fossil fuel industry that they refuse to disclose for them that puts them at odds with a great number of their members on climate stuff. And as you know, what they've done right now is they've set up, I think they call it their climate conversation Mm -hmm. with recalcitrant members who are upset about being painted as uh, anti-climate. And they've got them in this little climate conversation, like in a little corral. And anything good that they're asked to do on climate goes into that corral and becomes part of that climate conversation, out of which nothing has ever emerged. Nothing. It's the black hole of climate activity. It's PR. Meanwhile, all the horrible stuff that they've always been doing to stop climate action Uh, goes right past the climate conversation, straight into operations without the least hesitation. And for the moment, the corporations, big, smart corporations who are in the corral seem comfortable to be treated this way, not treated seriously and uh, producing no result. So it's a bit of a mystery why they're not more agitated. It's hard to believe that corporations this big and uh, this powerful are being played by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce unwillingly or unwittingly. I think there's a very good chance that they know this is a fake climate conversation. They couldn't care less that their organization is obstructing climate progress. So, yeah, there's a very significant chance that this is a phony operation in which these big corporations are acting a role rather than sincerely trying to move climate anything. The chamber is so powerful that the next most a prolific spender on lobbying in the entire world in the United States Congress behind the chamber spends less than a third of what the chamber does. So mm-hmm. not only is it the leading lobbyist, it's the leading lobbyist by a factor of three. And that doesn't even count 
the dark money, the campaign contributions, the litigation, and the regulatory effort. So, so, so let me just like get this China straight for our listeners, because I think some of them may be quite shocked. I mean, we had a, a series a few weeks ago on momentum versus perfection about how people in the climate movement, you know, are torn between trying to keep forward motion. But, but you know, some people have these high ideals or whatever. And, and, you know, the movement's in conflict with itself. You're saying to us that actually the sheer weight of lobbying from the fossil fuel industry is essentially kind of deranging uh, the democratic institutions of the United States, and that's the problem. Is it that simple? Yes, and I think the word actually is corrupting. Corrupting, wow. Yep. Okay. And what you, you, you basically see a couple of groups. You see the full-on uh, fossil fuel-funded front groups that are created and funded by them just to go out there and accomplish their mischief. Then you see... The existing groups, like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which have been more or less taken over and inhabited by fossil fuel, I now hashtag them as hashtag Chamber of Carbon. Yikes. And so they do the bidding of the fossil fuel industry, even though they pre-existed the climate denial effort. And then the third group uh, is the huge trade associations for other interests like the American Banking Association, the American Insurance Association, the realtors, the retailers, the tech folks, they all play in Congress through trade associations that are the vector for their political power. And there is not one trade association that is any damn use on climate at all. They are uh, silently complicit in what the rest of corporate America is doing. But you're also saying that that companies that we, you know, big companies that you wouldn't think were in the fight, you know, like good companies, I don't know, you know, kind of your Microsofts or your Coca-Colas or something, you're saying that they're not taking action to stop this corruption. You're saying that they're complicit by inaction. Their trade associations are completely useless. Some don't even mention climate. And you have groups like banks. You know, big banks are out there publicly worried and concerned and writing reports about climate change, about coastal property value crashes and what that means for mortgages along the coasts and uh, what happens when wildfire adjacent properties are uninsurable and there's a wildfire area property values crash. I mean, they are looking the what happens when the carbon bubble bursts and there's a massive economic dislocation worldwide. They report on all of this stuff, and then they send into Congress the American Bankers Association, which couldn't give a red-hot damn, doesn't mention the issue, and is, um, I think, what's the word? Their silence is deafening. Yeah. So the IPCC says we need binding government policy, voluntary corporate actions, and and kind of consumer behavior is not enough. In your opinion, Correct. how important is binding meaningful government policy to deal with climate change in the United States and globally. Essential to the survival of our species on the terms that we now live uh, in nature and on Earth uh, under. Okay. It is absolutely essential. And um, Congress is absolutely essential to that. And that is why the fossil fuel industry focuses so much effort on Congress. And to put Paul's point that this is hard to believe into perspective, actually, not so much. If you look at what the International Monetary Fund has said about how big the subsidy for fossil fuel is in the United States of America, 
They've tagged it at $660 billion a year, mostly from the fossil fuel industry dodging its responsibility for its own pollution, which is a violation of Econ 101, which says that negative externalities belong in the price of the product to have a real market. So they have enabled Congress to defeat the real market principle that they should pay for the cost of their pollution, and that runs up to $660 billion of subsidy. So how much, if you're the fossil fuel industry, would you be willing to spend in dark money on politics to defend a $660 billion subsidy every single year? Well, a Harvard professor told me the answer actually is about three and a half trillion at net present value, and that buys you that buys you a lot of a lot of presidency. You can't spend you can't spend that much money on lobbying. Oh, I think politics. you. I think people are having a good old go. It's a two hundred to one annual payback if that's the right number, and you know you not only have the direct dark money, but you also have to run the machinery through which the dark money comes. So you have to prop up donors' trust. You have to prop up. Competitive Enterprise Institute. You have to prop up the Heritage Foundation and the Heartland Institute and this whole array of, you know, dozens of phony front groups that they play like piano keys. I mean, it's extraordinary that uh, that this is not more of a bigger story and, and we're not debating this more in society around the world. Well, that's one of the reasons that I have argued that you shouldn't allow corporations to show up at the cops, the climate conference of the parties, at uh, oceans conferences, at any climate or environment-related gatherings, unless they bring with them a certified statement of their climate political footprint, which would be easy to do. You run how you're lobbying, you run the, the climate records of the members of Congress you're contributing to, but then it gets a little bit dicey because you run how your trade associations are behaving on climate, mm -hmm. which means there has to be some reporting back that the American Insurance Association isn't doing squat on climate despite the huge insurance risks. And then you get into the real danger zone, which is the dark money that they're desperate to protect. But if they had to report it in order to show up, we would get a much truer picture of what's really going on. And the two-facedness of uh, corporate America on climate would be flagrantly apparent. What can people do to try and engage with this, you know, ghastly political nightmare? I mean, we were kind of joking about it earlier because it's so bad. It's kind of funny. But I mean, you know, human survival kind of depends on us fixing this problem. What can people do? Well, I think the first thing to do is to um, be outraged. The more that the civic world um, is putting pressure on the corporate world to stop the two-facedness. Uh, and that can go right down to individuals, you know? Mm -hmm. Send a letter to Coca-Cola if you're a shareholder, or even if you're just a customer. Hey, I'm trying to decide whether I should have Coke or Pepsi products in my refrigerator. Sure looks like your American Beverage Association is totally useless on climate stuff. What should I think about that? And just put pressure on them. They, they care about consumers, and they particularly care about young consumers. So if you're a young consumer listening to this, and you say, hey, I'm 18 years old, I'm going to be buying drinks for another you know, 50 to 70 years, most likely. Uh, and I'm wondering why it is that the American Beverage Association, which you support, doesn't do a damn thing on climate, then they will pay, they'll start paying attention. 
we're going to run out of time, but can I just ask you to say a little bit about the, uh, so to say, Limit, Save and Grow Act? Uh, because it looks like <laughs> there's um, something very unpleasant coming to try and attack the Inflation Reduction Act. Is that correct? Yeah. So if you really wanted to limit, save and grow, what you do is limit carbon pollution, save the enormous costs that climate change is going to cause us and grow the clean energy economy. That's the real limit, save and grow. But this so-called limit, save, grow bill that McCarthy has come up with, which is his prescription for how to default on the credit of the United States, we've run through it and nearly 280 of its 320 pages are devoted to giveaways to fossil fuel. Oh, no. This is not a bill about the debt limit. This is a bill about taking care of the big fossil fuel donors who support the Republican Party, like a hand supports a glove. And uh, if you if you can't see the uh, machinations and mischief of the fossil fuel industry in this uh, awful default bill, um, you're really not looking. Hmm. Wow. And, and you have given 288 speeches in the U.S. Senate on this topic. Is that correct, Senator Whitehouse? Yes, I've been a persistent annoyance. This is an infuriating danger, uh, and it is an infuriating um, dereliction. America actually matters in the world, and we matter, as President Clinton famously said, more because of the power of our example mm -hmm. than because of any example of our power. And the example that we are presenting to the rest of the world right now is of a our vaunted democracy corrupted on an issue that is going to dramatically influence the lives of the next generations by the fossil fuel industry, which we all know has a massive conflict of interest, it's just an awful, awful message for the United States to send to the world about democracy. And don't think that the Chinese and the Russians and you know other totalitarian countries, which have their own view of how the earth should be run and how politics should be run, don't think they won't take advantage of this. But the idea that people fought and bled and died in World War II in order to create the American century, in order to create freedom in Europe and freedom in Asia, and do the MacArthur plan in out of Japan and do the uh, Marshall plan across Europe, all of those good works, uh, we are at risk of spoiling and soiling because we've allowed one greedy industry to corrupt the very institution that we hold most high. Dylan, that was quite the sobering moment, I would say. Nomi is super smart and clearly knows exactly what she's talking about and then to hear senator sheldon whitehouse talk about the corruption of the u.s political system it's a strong word but you cannot deny what he says what did you make of that dylan um you, you know hugely powerful and i've known those two individuals for some time respect them immensely and i think they are amongst the most influential and necessary, I'll use the word, warriors in our fight for climate. Um, one thing that struck me, I mean, we both work for civil society groups or run civil society groups dealing with the climate crisis. 
One thing that he said struck me was, why aren't more civil society groups addressing what he thinks is the core problem around climate, which is is the corruption or influencing of climate politics? I think it's exactly the right question, Dylan. And the reason why I've been so supportive of, of your work for such a long time is I think you really do embrace this. I think I think the main reason is it's hidden. No one goes out there and says, hi, you know, I'm going to subvert the political process. You know, so you don't see that on any website. It happens through trade associations, think tanks. It happens through kind of dark money paying for political outcomes. But I think, you know, that the simple, awful, nightmarish truth of that somehow is too complicated or it's too invisible. I, I, I don't know. I guess one thing I've noticed or studying the fossil fuel industry, the, one of the reasons they're winning is that they are so razor focused on what the core issue is, which is blocking any binding legislation. The other side is focused on a whole range of things. You know, climate is now climate justice, reimagining finance, getting consumer behavior to change, all of these things. And uh, it, it's, it's, it gets dispersed. And that, meanwhile, the lobbying machine just says, all we need to do is block this next little piece of legislation, delay this next um, policy move, and that's it. Okay, so let's try and find out about some investors who are trying to do something about this. So we're going to have two interviews now, one with Amita Chowdhury, Group Head of Sustainability at AIA, which is an enormous insurance company with hundreds of billions of dollars based out of Hong Kong, and also with Steve Waygood, the Chief Responsible Investment Officer of Aviva Insurance, again, a huge group with hundreds of billions of dollars based in Europe. So let's start off with Amita, who has a fascinating perspective from the most important region of the world. You've talked before about your commitment as a company to deliver on a net zero strategy by 2050. Can you tell me how you think government policy fits into achieving your goal? Uh, So in 2022, we've done extensive amounts of work to look at the levers we will need to decarbonize our operations and our investments, and government policy and actions feature significantly. That will affect the delivery of our goals, but also the goals of the companies that have made these commitments around net zero. Uh, As you know, the private sector cannot do it alone. Government policy uh, must be in place for an effective transition. So, for example, Singapore currently has a tar- carbon tax of $5 per ton, expected to go up to $25 per ton 20, uh, in 2024 and 2025, and to between $50 to $80 per ton by 2030. Enormously helpful for decarbonization mm. and set, uh, uh, you know, um, progress towards the goal for uh, many companies, including ours. And finally, disclosure. Uh, we need that in a big way. We need a greater regulatory push around environmental disclosures that will allow asset owners like us to set verifiable targets for a greater proportion of our portfolio and monitor progress in a meaningful way. Mm. I mean, uh, th- thank you for calling out the uh, 
legislation by the government of Singapore to have a, a carbon tax to say the price and to and to give clear indications of the of the direction of the price uh, it really can help business with planning but also fascinating your comments that the uh, the kind of Asia Pacific region or whatever is so enormous uh, and diverse that uh, it, it's much more complex to come to these you know the the US federal government may be a little bit confusing and difficult or the the, you know, the European Commission may have its problems with its member states but fundamentally there's a there's potential for an overarching infrastructure or an overarching legislative reach that you just you know doesn't doesn't apply to to two to two-thirds of the world or 60% of the world's population and, and, and that's that's very logical right yes indeed so um you know it's i know it's probably difficult to go into details but in principle how can um, a big company and I, I mean I'm not specifically talking about uh, AIA I mean any large company how can how can a company or, or a big investor help government action how can it support government how can you be uh, you know a shoulder to shoulder we would say with the government to to, 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 to push forward for, for more progressive um, uh, policy to, to help us decarbonize yeah I think one of the things that we do it uh, obviously uh, is the action that we take on climate, right? So let me put the support for government action in the context of Asia Pacific, uh, which, as I said, is representing the biggest opportunity for global climate action. So we are present in 18 uh, markets, and of these, 15 have met net zero commitments. But the policy response is currently not proportional to the delivery that of these commitments. And so business action becomes very critical to address both mitigation and adaptation. And the actions that we're taking for a low carbon future and, and for our net zero commitment will greatly augment the support that we have provided and all the governments over a long period of time already. So what are some of the actions that we are taking on climate? One is aligning with the governments to make sure that we make this net zero commitment or strategic priority for the business. You know, how do you see the future of ESG, which is, um, I, I've, I've come to realize recently, very different in very different parts of the world. So there has been a momentum building, but of course, 2022, we saw a turbulence in ESG. We saw one step back, two steps forward. Mm. Uh, we saw the invasion of Ukraine accelerating the short-term investment in some replacement fossil fuels, LNG, but also coal for energy security. But it also seems to be spurring on a faster transition to clean energy in the EU for energy independence. We've seen uh, the ESG backlash, uh, anti-work movement We have from the right wing in the US, but we've also seen the biggest policy win with the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act mm-hmm. to extract decarbonization. Companies are being called out for greenwashing, green hushing. Uh, but uh, but we've seen an increasing emphasis on standardization of disclosures through ISSP, uh, launched by the IFRS's foundation to address the aggregate confusion caused by this alphabet soup of ESG standards, frameworks and ratings. So going forward, I see uh, that there will be some divergence uh, that will continue in the future, but ESG is very much here to stay. So it's good to hear that despite the challenges, Amita believes that ESG is here to stay. And I think ESG is a funny term, but I think what she means is the sense of responsibility of that enormous company is here to stay. Now, having gained Amita's perspective, working in a giant insurance company in Asia, to complement this, let's now hear from Steve Waygood. And we thought the view of another who's played an instrumental role would be fascinating. And Steve has been a leader in sustainability for a long time. 
I mean, you you and I go back to I think COP six actually that was the, the first it. time we um, actually had a conversation at a COP, and I I remember the environment ministers forever have been coming to the COPs, and and they've been going back to their capitals and and talking about how deeply profound the problems are and how they need to be stopped and how governments need to work together. And, you know, the environment ministers are obviously understanding the issues now. The science is really clear, and that's wonderful. The science is clear. But the progress is being impeded by the economics. And the way the way that's happening, I think, is it's important to understand because there, there's real, real politic issues are stopping us. There are some really important handbrakes. For example... You start talking about climate risks and and people in central banks start thinking of transition risk. How much value would be eroded from pension savings and investments if we move away from the fossil fuel sector at least too fast? I mean, some would argue there's no such thing as moving away too fast, but the transition risk, they worry about. What will happen to the tobacco sector if we give up smoking too quickly? (laughs) Exactly. This is a a thing. And... I mean, that said, there are people who will own tobacco investments without knowing it. Mm. And that's just the way financial services are sold at the moment. And equally, people will own oil and gas without knowing it. So if they're uncomfortable about that, they need to, to look into that. But the transition risks are real. They, they do present financial stability issues. Then they talk about GDP needing low-cost energy. Then they talk about employment, full employment, and what happens to the those that work in the various sectors that need to transition. And then then the, the chancellors, the finance ministers start worrying about inflation and, and what happens if we move away from low-cost energy in the form of oil and gas. And bit by bit, the political reality of what happens at the next electoral cycle starts hitting the, the prime minister, the presidents, and it means the environment ministers, who, let's face it, aren't the most powerful in most countries anyway, they get overwhelmed by this sort of wall of economic handbrakes, if you like, these systemic handbrakes. But what the environment ministers are now beginning to realise is that actually climate risk, climate change, will harm GDP inexorably, if it's allowed to run away from us, will harm employment. There are no jobs on a dead planet, as I've heard others say. Um, Will harm inflation. There's no question that insurance, for example, will go up and up in price as the risks are going up and up in the system and there'll be certain things that we just can't ensure which brings us back to financial instability there is no question that at a certain point the physical risk in the system is just too much for the system to cope with we don't know where that is but we do think it is probably where we're currently heading business as usual which by some measures is around three and a half degrees not the one and a half or the two that is clearly the ambition of the paris agreement um, but three and a half at which point some of the physical risks are so profound, not only do we have to worry about flood and fire and famine, but the geopolitical risks from the, the enormous levels of migration that are implied uh, would also be uh, a, a, an inflationary moment and a, and a civilization issue too. You know, let's, let's be really blunt. So I think the problem is one of time frame. The issues today should be eclipsed by the future issues that are being shored up if the world worked um, properly, if you like, if, if the intergenerational ethical issues drove political behaviour. But as, it, as we know, that's not how political cycles work. So that's some of what I'm beginning to realise we're, we're up against. 
but we're still right to promote change because, of course, we need it. So, you know, you are the chief responsible investment officer of a gigantic investor with hundreds of billions of pounds that also happens to be an insurance company and general insurance companies that understand climate change very well. What, in your view, is the role of financial institutions to help governments bring in policy to support business and investors to reach the net zero commitments? So what, what's our role? Inform the conversation. That's obviously how policy is shaped, through debate. So we have a role there. Uh, two levels, I think, of that debate. One, at the level of the real economy. What, what are we seeing as market failures in the companies that we're analysing? You know, where is it paying them to do the wrong thing? Mm. Uh, we, we can be very open and honest and blunt to policymakers about where those market failures are and the kinds of corrections that they might wish to explore. After all, it's them that should do that. So real economy debate, informing that. And then more particularly, financial services is often said they're incredibly complicated. It's true. Banking, insurance, investment, uh, the massive scale of all three of those sectors, the various different asset classes, the different products, the way it works. I don't believe anywhere in the world, anyone in the world understands the whole system. I'm not professing to, even though I have been a banking analyst in an insurance company working for fund managers for now nearly two decades. So it is really complicated. And in my experience, policymakers and politicians tend not to understand finance and markets. So those of us that work in the system have, I think, a a duty to shine a light on where it isn't working and how it can be changed. So that's the information side of things. And within that encouragement, supporting policymakers, supporting politicians publicly when necessary, who are are brave enough to, to step up to this plate and talk about the scale of change that's needed. They need the backing of sensible financial institutions who understand the scale of this challenge. Uh, there's no question that there's a, there's a policy debate and um, you know, the people on the right side of it need our support. And then there's this question around how do we hold them to account? And, and that's harder. Um, but we do lend, as an industry, approaching $90 trillion to global governments around the world. And it is true, of course, that when we lend and invest in companies, lend to and invest in companies, we all now in financial services accept that we've got a stewardship obligation, a responsibility to check that those company directors who we elect to represent our interests are doing good things with the money and, and, and adhering to generally accepted standards of good practice. That, that stewardship discussion is now absolutely accepted, certainly in Europe. But the question about what we do on the sovereign asset class is nowhere near so well explored. And and by sovereign, you're talking about basically lending money to nations, right? Yes, exactly. Governments and government lending. And I think one of the things that all the listeners will be now interested in is, of course, many of them will have thought about their corporate investments. But what about their country investments? It will be part of pretty much everyone's pension scheme in all likelihood. Um, you know, of course, governments vote at COP. Uh, everyone signed the Paris Agreement. They have an NDC now. Some of them are up to date, some of them aren't. Uh, Some of the NDCs, nationally determined contributions, have a capital raising plan. Many of them don't. What do we, as lenders to those countries, say to them about the status of their commitments to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and to their own citizens particularly where their commitments we know need to be delivered to shore up 
financial stability over the coming decades. And what do we say? How do we express concern? And increasingly, we're finding there are, there are lots of opportunities in that asset class that our industry hasn't even properly begun to explore, in, in all blunt honesty, Paul. Extreme physical risk associated with climate change will jeopardise the integrity of the market. I was saying earlier how insurance as a business model might collapse. And if that happens, what then happens to banks and their mortgage books, where, of course, mortgages need home insurance in most markets. Um, so you know, we all recall what happened with the subprime a mortgage situation leading to a, a financial crisis and a, a global recession, the Great Recession in uh, 08, 09. That was just 8% of the US mortgage market that did that. Imagine what happens where it's all mortgages everywhere, um, particularly those where banks require home insurance. So we have a legal duty, an economic interest, and I think an opportunity to hold governments to account to help and support them, to inform the process, to encourage the transition to be at the right pace. I mean, you've been uh, a leader in sustainable finance for a long time, Steve. You know this better than anybody. What you know? What's what's in your toolkit before we come on to how uh, maybe our listeners can can help uh, participate in that game? The levers that governments can use to correct the market failure—they're the ones that have the hands on tax subsidy, on creation of standards, on creating market mechanisms like uh, emissions trading schemes, uh, on building new regulations, on consumer awareness tools. So that those those are the ways in which you correct the market failure. That's how you internalise the externality as a government. So our levers, how do we help them understand that? And how do we participate in consultations, for example, or even kick off a global consultation on a particular issue, for example, in the European Commission. Um, very proud to, to have helped get the European Commission uh, produce a high-level expert group back in 2015, which I then served on, that then created the Sustainable Finance Action Plan, which now underpins so many policies in Europe, which have now gone global. The taxonomy, for example, another one which asks for the financial advisors to then in turn ask individuals what their interests are in this area uh, before giving them a product that's suitable. So the levers that we have in mind are the ones that governments have to correct the mechanism. So I've got to stop you there. This is worth repeating. You've you've helped create the regulations that require financial intermediaries to actually ask the public when they're kind of buying products what they're looking for. Because <laughs> the if I understand correctly, that's going right to the top of the like, um, it's rather than the end of pipe problem, you're going to the very source the kind of the, 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 the king or queen in the whole system, right? The actual investor. We don't have a global governance system that's fit for purpose for governing the transition. The G7, the G20, the UNFCCC, the way that there are vested interests within the kind of unanimity voting clauses on, on the UNFCCC, there, there are, we're holding ourselves back. And crucially, no anywhere in the world, no multilateral body has the job of building the plan or even a process for how others build the plan towards mobilising four to six trillion dollars of new money in, in invested into solutions to the climate transition. Dylan, I thought those were great interviews with people I actually really admire working in finance. And 
I mean, do you think finance has got the potential to solve these problems or what role do you think it plays? How do you see it? The holy grail of, of, of many parts of, of the climate community is how to unleash the trillions in pension funds and, and, and in finance towards green and away from brown. And, um, you know, it's, it's a massive theory of change that's, that's ongoing. I mean, look, I don't know if you've had this experience, Dylan, but mine is often in conversations with brilliant people in the movement who we love and admire. But there's this sense that we've got to kind of reorganize the financial system and it can seem very complicated. And sometimes I'm kind of getting a little bit lost. But then there's another part of me that thinks, wait a minute, you know, money just flows like water, right? If we tax carbon, everyone's going to get out of carbon because they don't want to pay the tax. I mean, I wish I could, I wish I could make that sentence more complicated, but I think it's that simple. <laughs> It, it it really it really it really is that simple, and that's what they were saying. I, look, I went to the original COP in Kyoto in 1997, and they said, "Look, it's easy. Let's just put a tax on carbon." And all the governments got together and th- and thought, "Wow, this is great. We're going to solve this." And then what happened? The corporate lobbyists went and and scuppered that whole idea. They scuppered the ETS in Europe, the the emission trading system, and. And now we're at where we are and we have no regulations uh, and um, we're relying on the financial system to, to act uh, altruistically, I guess, in, in, be, while the real economy regulations are not in place. Okay, so this is about politics, Dylan. You and I are completely agreed. Let's go and hear from someone I think is an absolutely brilliant politician. That we need to now slay this myth that somehow net zero is going to make us colder and poorer. Net zero will make us warmer and richer, and it is the economic opportunity of the decade, if not this century, to be able to create a new economy. Net zero is not just about 2050. We can't keep on kicking the can down the road. We don't have 28 years. We've got seven years to deliver on what is the most ambitious national determined contribution of 68% emissions reduction. If the UK achieves that, that is an economic prize that every single country across the world will look to us on how to achieve, and it will deliver further growth. Ultimately, net zero is the future for the UK. That's Conservative MP and former UK Energy Minister Chris Skidmore speaking in the House of Commons in March this year, following the publication of his must-read publication, The Cross-Party Review of Net Zero. Almost three years ago, you signed net zero into law, making the UK the first major economy to do so. And you've uh, written a compelling cross-party review of net zero. And I wanted to begin by asking you to form a kind of climate party and become prime minister. But there is a new climate party that's formed. And I asked the leader, Ed Gemmell, what is his policy? And he said the Skidmore review. So it seems that you're sort of already there. Is that right? Well, I mean, the, the review, I mean, Ed took part in the the review. I think he was on one of the roundtables. Uh, and, and I will say, even though I'm a Conservative uh, member of Parliament and obviously was a Conservative minister that signed Net Zero into law, I was really keen to make sure that the review was cross-party. Yeah, that's the only way we're going to deliver on climate action and trying to get that buy-in uh, is absolutely critical. So I'm delighted that, that, that Ed sort of welcomes its recommendations. Well, I mean, it is a new kind of politics. I think I call it politics with a small p, the, the politics of system conditions, which is not something that we need to argue about, something we can all agree on. Chris, we've, we're really trying to dig into how the climate 
movement, which is growing every year, as you know, in its response to extreme weather and everybody understanding how much trouble we're in, how we as a movement can best interact with government. Now, you've said everybody's thinking, how do we implement and how do we deliver on our commitments? And you've said that 50% of all decisions that deliver net zero will not be taken by government. Now, I'm sure this is true, but I put it to you that only government can, to use that analogy from fireworks, only government can kind of light the blue touch paper and then stand well back. Do you agree with that? Well, I mean, trying to think of a sort of an equivalent analogy around the blue touch paper, I mean, I think we've sort of moved further than that now. There's a sort of ring of fire that's sort of burning uh, and the government's standing in the middle. And actually, uh, there are those on the outside who are sort of trying to douse it uh, and put it out. And those are the local government, regional government, sort of business, industry. Everyone wants to get on with it. Uh, And actually, it's government that's behind the curve now. You know, in contrast to where I was as a minister several years ago, taking forwards net zero, that had that was the moment when the blue touch paper was lit, and we've moved beyond that now. We we created that catalytic moment. If you'd asked me several years ago that now ninety percent of the world's GDP would be under a net zero uh, target of some sorts, I simply wouldn't have believed you. We are moving so fast uh, at this moment that actually Whitehall and Westminster, I don't think, realise the scale of pace that actually business and industry need. And part of the net zero review was to identify, see what is needed in order to unlock potentially how to go further, faster. Uh, And yes, government must create the enabling conditions, the regulations, legislation, policy certainty, in order to make sure we can get the investment that is needed into net zero. But half of this is around about getting out of the way. At the moment, when it comes to planning, when it comes to some of those regulations I spoke about, actually they're holding back uh, a big bang moment. I talked about in the review, a big bang moment that would allow uh, actors on the stage to own their own net zero uh, journey. And that could be uh, local government, it could be uh, regional mayoralties, it could be community energy groups, but they are not being given the powers they need to be able to get on with the job. And that, I think, is the key dynamic that's changed in the past couple of years. So that's that's fascinating. You're saying that government does need to kind of kick this off, and I'd like to talk about that some more. But you also think government's got to remove a whole bunch of blockers. It's quite, it's quite peculiar, isn't it? it? It's kind of more government and less government at the same time. How, how should our listeners kind of frame that, that work? I think the, the key thing is, is, is around how you take a mission-based approach uh, Approach And obviously the report, Net Zero Review, was called Mission Zero. And one of the things the government didn't respond to directly was the call for 10-year, at least 10-year programmatic certainty around 10 uh, missions. Because if you can create a sense of a mission, uh, you get a sense of a, a different sense of ownership. More actors can then see what the pr- paradigm has been set out, the parameters that we need to meet, the data that's needed. Actually, it begins to generate... You know, its own sense of momentum where you don't need, you know, cap in hand going to government all, all the time. And you know, we've seen that in the past uh, where actually, you know, you took like the moon mission is obviously the classic example. Um, but, you know, government hasn't got a role to play in that. It's got to provide the incentives and the investment needed for those who know what to do uh, to, to get on with it. Uh, and it's, I think it's the same with net zero across a range of areas, whether that's energy efficiency, whether that's looking at sort of you know, onshore wind, solar. Uh, actually, those blockers, those moratoriums that are in place, those sort of questions around sort of land use regulation, all are stopping the future deployment 
uh, of uh, net zero. Uh, so the government's got to really sort of set out, I think, that long-term consistency, clarity, continuity uh, of, of positioning that will allow sort of private investment to set de-risk their sort of investment strategies for the future. Uh, the challenge is this is happening in other countries. So whether that's in Germany, uh, whether that's in the United States, whether that's in the EU, they're all setting out these long-term programmatic visions, a strategic sense of what we need to achieve, rather than the sort of project-by-project approach that has, uh, in a way, uh, caused so many of the problems within our own net zero transition by maintaining high costs around labour, around materials, the supply chains that are unable to have that certainty to actually look at how they can deploy at scale and therefore reduce costs. And that was very much the sort of positioning of the net zero view, was if we want this opportunity to be realisable, government needs to get out of the way, government also needs to provide certainty. So it is a tightrope, you're absolutely right, Paul. Uh, But at the same time, uh, thinking about this in a different way requires government to think in the long term rather than just in the short term. Now, you've said that net zero is, in a sense, a kind of narrative. Classically, you would be described as, as a, you know, an MP and, and, uh, and a former minister as a policymaker. But then again, I wonder if you're a storyteller or should good policymakers be good storytellers? So I look both to the past and the present for creating these new narratives. And actually, one of the reasons why I've tried to step forward on net zero to demonstrate that it is this opportunity It is not just an environmental policy tool to deliver on climate uh, emissions reductions, but it is the principal economic opportunity of this decade, if not the century, is because I wanted to counter from a centre-right perspective this narrative that net zero is going to be a cost, it's going to make us poorer, colder, that we're not ready for it, that somehow it's being forced and imposed upon a population by a bunch of eco-zealots. Net zero is the very least that we can do at the same time as continue to grow our economy and uh, create new jobs. You know, many of our listeners are in corporations, they're in NGOs. Um, How can uh, we as a climate change movement be most productive in terms of accelerating the the kind of the technical detail of policy so it's it's sort of um, parliamentary ready, for a better word? I'm, I'm running something now called the Mission Zero Coalition, Uh, It has a buildings Mission Zero network, it's got a local Mission Zero network, and it's got uh, an industry Mission Zero network, all of which are going to make recommendations to political parties about where we could be innovating on new policy frameworks to raise the level of ambition. Because I I passionately believe in that opportunity to co-create, to co-author policies. Uh, You know, Net Zero didn't come on high from the government. It was recommended to the government by NGOs, by the Committee on Climate Change, which also has a critical role to play in in what it can recommend uh, for the future. We've just seen that with energy performance certificates. They've made future recommendations on that, as did the Net Zero Review. The government's now going to take forward potential measures to reform energy performance certificates to make them fit for a net zero purpose. But we can do much more. You've written many actual real books, but metaphorically, you've written the book on cross-party collaboration um, consensus building across the political spectrum. Do you have any sense of, of how best to do that? What principles you've deployed to, to build that, that ability to, to convene coalitions where the separation in politics, which has been so, so much emphasised in the last five or ten years, uh, is put aside and people roll their sleeves up and collaborate? I think the, the, the really important point 
around working collaboratively is to make sure you genuinely mean it. And if and you, you genuinely mean it, that means bringing parties in earlier rather than later. So when I had the Net Zero Review, I reached out to Ed Miliband, Kerry McCarthy, Alan Whitehead on the Labour side. I met with Caroline Lucas on the Green side. You know, we met with the uh, Welsh government. We met, I met with went up to Scotland uh, to meet Michael Matheson uh, from the SNP. And I sat down with them early and said, look, I want to ensure that the review takes every party's reflections on board. You may not necessarily agree with all the final conclusions. Obviously, building consensus means that not everyone is going to be happy with potentially some of the compromise solutions that maybe need to be sought. But where could we find agreement for the future? So making sure that you actually genuinely mean it when you talk about cross-party consensus uh, is key. Um, I think also, you know, recognising that the current consensus around sort of you know, traditional party politics is shifting. So I think, you know, the local elections we just had in the UK, for me, if you looked at some of those results, the Green Party went from 200 to 400 seats, uh, you know, far in advance of what UKIP ever achieved. Uh, and and, and I, I just get the feeling that actually when it comes to certainly the next generation, even our current generation, they are looking for issues-based policies of which climate change is now number three on the agenda behind the economy and the NHS. And so sort of recognising that this can't be achieved without cross-party consensus. That's the other thing is that, and this is where we are valued internationally, is that if we have one party coming in and saying they're going to rip up something another party's done, why would any private sector invest uh, in, in, in that? It's having that understanding that we work together will actually, the, the prize will be greater because we will have actually created a stable ecosystem. So making sure, I think, from a cross-party perspective, you are building on what has gone before and not seeking to remove what has taken place you know, is also sort of really uh, key as well. We've interviewed Steve Waygood, who's uh, Chief Responsible Investment Officer at Aviva. Steve said that there is a potentially a bit of a problem in politics. Um, and I quote him, he said, the chances the finance ministers start worrying about inflation and what happens if we move away from low-cost energy in the form of oil and gas, and bit by bit, the poli- political reality of what happens at the next electoral cycle starts hitting the prime ministers, the presidents, they get knocked back. How can we avoid that regressive cycle cutting into this vital work? Compared to where we were uh, a year ago, nine months ago, um, we have now seen potentially a moratorium on onshore wind being lifted. Uh, we have seen fracking uh, and, and a ban on fracking being reinstated. I nearly sort of ceased to be a Conservative MP when I voted on a confidence vote, uh, saying that I you know, wanted to maintain my climate commitments rather than vote with my own government at the time. Uh, and that brought the Liz Truss administration down. Uh, but so, so I think we have seen everything moving in the right direction. Um, I think the, the challenge is going to be how do we ensure, like in 2019, net zero is on the front page of every political manifesto. Mm. Um, it's not obviously in Rishi Sunak's five priorities at the moment, um, but I would be hazard a guess that you know if, if we looked at when it comes to what is that sense of ambition, that sense of vision for the country that we need, you know, embedding net zero in that vision uh, will ensure that its survival continues uh, across the decades as, as is required.
I was brought up in a, in, a, in a household somewhat of the left, and it was not my natural inclination to want to vote for people of the blue party. We were more of the red party. There wasn't even a green party, uh, because I'm, I'm not so young. But my point being that I think this pretty brilliant politician has found the sort of secret of building cross-party consensus. He, he, he seems very serious, very competent. His review is fantastic. So, you know, I think with people like Chris Skidmore in different countries all around the world, you know, we could get there. But going back to the discussion earlier in this podcast, that's only going to work if politicians like Chris Skidmore have got the mechanism and the freedom to do their jobs. Anyway, that's just, that's where I was. And then what do you think of Chris Skidmore? In, in my opinion, I don't think any politicians anywhere genuinely have anything against climate change solutions. Yeah. I think yeah. it's all originating from the money and the corporate influencing. And actually, I've had discussions with uh, folks in Washington, like which came first, the negative Republican politicians or the climate lobbyists? And, and it's become almost a circular argument now, and they've almost created these politicians who are like androids in the system and they believe in climate denial almost like as a second or third generation <laughs> politician going forth. But it, it's all, all coming back to the money in the fossil fuel industry corrupting the system. I mean, we were talking a little bit before recording this about Senator Whitehouse and you had a particular comment that he'd made that you felt kind of struck home. What was that? Well, so I asked him rather rhetorically, is binding uh, policy needed? And you alluded to the carbon tax earlier. And he said, it's essential to the survival of our species on the terms that we live now. But then just thinking about these pretty progressive voices, I think Steve Waygood and Amita Chowdhury uh, from AIA and Aviva, you know, I think that it feels to me like uh, Big insurance companies, for example, and there are there are other enlightened financial institutions are just kind of they're just kind of turning up at the at the party in a way, uh, and they're just I think starting to take on some of the realities of this. I mean, you and I work for NGOs, right? So this is kind of like our job, but we're not managing hundreds of billions of dollars, whereas their organisations are. But it, I'm hopeful they're starting to factor the same logic into what could be described as their fiduciary duty or even just their self interest, right? No, they, they are, and I'm a big fan of Steve Waygood and people like him in that system. I think one of the issues with finance and advocacy around climate is finance has a huge set of regulations and, and policy that it's lobbying on, and it's not climate change, it's financial regulations. You know, a long time ago, a friend of mine said that most financial services legislation is kind of written by corporations, actually, who then sort of foist that on civil servants. But I think that what we're drawing a distinction between is the cut and thrust of commercial life and the survival of the species. I think we, we don't want to confuse, you know, the fact that there's a little bit of to and froing between governments and corporations on this and that with these critical national security issues. When we first launched Influence Map, we were invited to the Paris Agreement to present to all of these big businesses, you know, and we said, essentially, you're all part of these trade associations that are holding back progress. And there was a representative, chief sustainability officer of a consumer goods company on stage on the panel with me. And he said, look, 
Climate change is not just another political football that we can leave to the trade groups and lobbyists. This is different. This is the existential issue of our time. It's like civil rights in the 60s for the United States. It's something that needs to radically change the way we structure our society. And that, and that kind of stuck with, that stuck with me. And I use that anecdote to, to kind of shock people who are stuck in this mindset of, look, stay in your lane and lobby only if it's affecting your business. Yeah, and I mean, I in no way can decry the heroes of and heroines of the civil rights movement in the United States, one of the best examples of civil society changing a corrupt and evil system. We have to fix this. Dylan, such a pleasure and an honor to spend some time with you on this podcast. You are a fascinating intellect and enormous fun uh, to be with and have done amazing work. Thank you, Dylan, for being with me today on the first part of this journey and for doing what you have done so far with so much more for us all to do. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. Hello humans, you're listening to ONOWPOD. Tune in next week to hear part 2 of Paul's mini-series on Lifelines versus Deadlines. To play us out, a song request from the fossil fuel industry. This is Calm Down by the Alchemist Oxford, dedicated to anyone concerned about the climate crisis. See you next week. <laughs>